Welcome to another Rich Text Chat. This week, we're trying something a little bit different. That's right. We are finally starting a book club. An informal book club, or at least we are discussing one book with one author and like, we'll see how it goes. (laughs) I think it's going to go great. I think so too. Uh, The book is called A Special Place for Women. It will be out on Tuesday. And the author is our very good friend, Laura Hankin. Uh, You may know Laura from her last book, Happy and You Know It, uh, which is about uh, a mom group on like the Upper West Side. Um, And she was a bridesmaid in my wedding. So you may know her from that celebrity (laughs) event. And she's one of the most wonderful people in the world. Uh, She also happens to be my cousin by marriage which is just a great fun fact, which we um, really established during Claire's bachelorette party. I mean, people together. Yeah, it's there's just all sorts of connections. Um, (laughs) And her new book is a spooky satire set in an exclusive socially conscious women's club in New York. So obviously we are obsessed. It's very topical for us. Yes, there's so much to discuss in this book. Corporate feminism and girl bosses, pastel furniture and cute neon signs that say like, fuck the patriarchy, tarot decks on sale at Urban Outfitters, and of course, being special women, which we all are. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We've had so many conversations over the years, but never one recorded before. So I'm excited. I know the pressure <laughs> is on. Yeah, I'm okay. shaking. I'm shaking. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, uh, this is... We know this is a big deal for you because we are um, huge celebrities. So just this- try not to fangirl too much. You know, it's oh. fine. Don't worry about it. This is true. <laughs> I was on like a pre-publication book tour um, like in 2019 before Happy New Know It came out. And I mentioned to one of the other authors on the tour that like, oh, my friend Claire Fallon. Um, and she was like, Claire? As in Claire and Emma? What? <laughs> so That's- yeah. That's us. Uh, we're Claire and Emma, except for the Claire and Emma that like draw pictures of carp or something. And they were in that Microsoft Surface ad a while ago. Yeah, that was I'm still very bitter about spooky. it. I don't know if you ever the saw salmon that, Laura. sisters. Yeah, there were no, the salmon sisters, Claire and Emma. And it was like very startling every time that ad came on. Yeah. Let's let's actually talk about. <laughs> yeah, let's talk the about book. the book. OK, OK. Um, we'll come back to the salmon sisters <laughs> later. <laughs> We wanted Um, to kind of kick off by just, you know, asking you, where did the idea for this book come from and how did you kind of begin to research it? So the funny thing that uh, I don't think you knew until today, Emma, is that you played a role in my getting the idea for this book. I'm so honored. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I don't know, four years ago or something, you invited me to come meet you for a coffee at this uh, exclusive women-only space. I think we can say the name, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) The wing. (laughs) It was the wing. The Um, now disgraced wing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You Historical relic of yeah. the Trump era, which is now like owned by a man. I think the majority stakeholder of it. Anyways, Desecration. We can get into that later. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I remember like being so excited to come and meet you there. I had never been before, but I had obviously seen the gorgeous Instagram. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh my God, it's going to be this incredible utopia for women. I'm going to feel so welcomed. Maybe I'll try to join. And, 
And I was at this place in my life where I didn't feel particularly impressive, you know, happy new note had not been published yet. I was like running around to a bunch of day jobs. And I remember going and meeting you and you were so wonderful, but I just felt like the rest of the club, I felt so out of place and so self-conscious. I was like, <laughs> what am I doing here? My dress is so wrinkly. Like I'm too short. I don't know. For some reason I was like, I'm too short for the wing. <laughs> to, to be clear, I, I am five two. So yeah, but, I am <laughs> but I feel like you wear a lot of thick sold shoes, Emma, you know, and I, maybe that's, you know, it's, the, it's that extra like inch and a half of my uh, Everlane boots that, that <laughs> yeah. does it. Um, so yeah, it was just feeling self-conscious. And I remember in the elevator on the way back down, this woman was talking about like how the big struggle in her life was that it was so hard to date a celebrity chef because he was never free for brunch. Um, yeah, I desperately want to know who that woman is and who the celebrity chef is. These are, I'm just, this is an indication of all the connections I missed out on apparently <laughs> at the wing. <laughs> yeah. Are they still together? I yeah. don't know. Did brunch break them up? Um, <laughs> but so- I can see that that did seem to make it into your book, actually, the celebrity chef question. It did. From the very beginning of my writing this book, I was like, there needs to be a celebrity chef as one of the characters. <laughs> It was very important to me. So anyways, it made me, it just made me wonder like what would happen if a woman who really did not picture herself being part of an exclusive club like this had to really infiltrate it um, for her career. Uh, Yeah. So that's where it came from. And how did you go about researching it? Like, was that your last trip to the wing or did you try to infiltrate it yourself? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did. I like this whole undercover identity. No, that was my one and only trip to the wing, but I did spend a lot of time again on their Instagram, on their website, you know, reading all the things where they were like, come join the coven, you know, or like all their, their beautiful captions about stuff. Um, and reading a lot of articles about the people involved and just sort of girl quote unquote girl bosses generally, uh, in the book, I wanted the club to kind of have these factions, right? So there's the more girl bossy faction and then there's the sort of more bohemian into the occult, like really into astrology and tarot faction of people. So for that, I got to like go to a psychic, <laughs> to do some research there um, and sign up for CoStar or CoSign or whatever that app is. Oh, co- CoStar. CoStar. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly my research stuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I you mean, transformed it into yeah. in the stars, I assume. Um, I did. I did. Maybe we should give like a quick little grounding of kind of the, the, plot. the premise of the plot mm. of the book, which is that, um, <laughs> sorry, there's someone knocking on my door, which like literally never happens. Um, of I course think- right now. Um, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so so the the book is about um, a woman named Jillian who is a down on her luck journalist. Her digital media outlet was recently shuttered, and she lost her job. Very relatable. So, yeah, I mean, I have no <laughs> idea where I've heard that story. It's just you really pulled that one out of thin air, not at all based yeah. in anyone's reality. So, yeah. It's pretty fantastical. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jillian 
uh, has recently lost her mother to cancer. She's in a really tough place in her life. She only has one real friend who is a celebrity chef, uh, the boy down the street that she grew up with, Raf. And she needs a break. So she goes to her old editor, who is now at a prestigious magazine, and tries to pitch him stories. The only one that takes is, what if I infiltrate this secretive much more secretive than the wing. Like it's not even fully confirmed that it exists. Um, Social club for elite women in New York called Nevertheless. And he agrees. And so she sets off on this mission to um, infiltrate the the club and and do a tell-all because she believes that they're up to some nefarious stuff and that they are pulling strings in New York politics and that they took down the the first female mayor of New York City. Um, and a lot happens from there. We're going to try to avoid <laughs> Yeah, spoilers. we don't want to spoil it because you should buy this book and read it because it's really <laughs> fun and we cannot do all of the little delightful tidbits justice. So I think instead in this conversation, we want to kind of focus on the the bigger themes and the, the bigger questions that feel sort of illuminated um, in the novel. Yeah. Um, so I was really intrigued by the idea of setting a really dark thriller, satire, mystery um, in this really glossy, cozy space, like these spaces that are supposed to be safe spaces for women who are threatened by male violence at every turn. Um And I actually wrote something about this last year, um, an essay about this concept. And I'm curious for you, like what appealed to you about this juxtaposition of genre and setting? Yeah. I mean, I think these beautiful, beautiful places were always like, oh, if I could just get into those and be surrounded by other women and, you know, suddenly... I just had my allies in the fight and we could rest together (laughs) and like, we didn't have to worry about men. Everything would be great. And that is obviously not the case. You know, we've seen that in the real world um, and in, in other ways too. And so I just, I wanted to like, dig underneath these shiny, shiny surfaces. Um, because I feel like sometimes the shiniest surfaces can hide the deepest secrets. (laughs) And also, I mean, just generally, I'm really drawn to shiny surfaces and I want to be a part of them. So perhaps part of this was me being like, maybe it's good that I'm not a part of them because they have their problems anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I love the, the tension that you sort of get at in, in the book. And it's something that I I think was, you dealt with it, um, really compassionately, which like as someone who was a member of the wing and like loved it, but also felt really conflicted about it the whole time. I really appreciated. I mean, you sort of get at the inherent tension between this idea of like mission-based work and this lofty goal of advocating for gender equality. Um, and then the exclusivity of an elite club of any kind, even if it is, you know, focused on women who have been cast as this sort of marginalized group. Obviously that erases um, so many other ways that oppression plays out in our culture and also like turns this social justice mission into um, a, a capitalist product. So I kind of just wanted to 
to dig into that and um, wondered if you could kind of speak to how you, you wanted to explore that in the novel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've over the years been so drawn to, you know, this feminist label, of course. Um, and like, I, I want all the t-shirts <laughs> like this is what a feminist looks like. Um, because one, it, I believe in it, you know, <laughs> obviously like women have dealt with so many terrible struggles and we need to change that and we want to make the world a better place. Um, but two, also like, it's really pretty <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's like, Hey, everybody, like, this is my signal to you that, you know, you should join this little t-shirt wearing club with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, what does happen when you become so much more focused on the pretty t-shirts or the really fun tote bags um, and you lose sight of like the people who can't afford the t-shirts, don't have access to the t-shirts and tote bags, <laughs> uh, you know, for all of, all of these reasons, I think feminism, um, has been commodified in a way over the last however many years. And I think we're now starting to acknowledge that like, oh no, we do need to dig deeper. Um, this cannot be the only thing that we do is like buy the tote bag and be like, and pat ourselves on the back. And so that's partially what I wanted to explore in the book. Like it's yeah. hard to do the work in a more meaningful way. It's easy to buy a tote bag. Yeah, yeah, which is why we all have so many tote bags. So many. I have a tote and bag full still... of other tote bags. <laughs> exactly. I have like five <laughs> tote bags full of tote bags, and we still don't have universal childcare or like anything that yeah. I actually want. We How just have like a, a, a minimum wage that is, you know, livable. Except, yeah, livable at all. I mean, yeah, so, so many things. But as you said, there is like an ease that comes with buying a thing to signal your values or belonging to a club that you feel signals your values. Um, yeah. and, and something that I found, I mean, maybe this is a tangent, but like found interesting about the wing as a product is that, yeah, part of its appeal was that it would like signal your goodness in some way. Um, yeah. and at the same time, like if they had done away with the sort of loftier mission and just said like, we want to be a space that centers non-cis men and like, you can come and work here. And it's just a really convenient space that's aesthetically pleasing. And like, you can come like that to me, I think, I think they, the reason that these things get into trouble is because they try to do too much of the signaling rather than just being like, we're a commodity, we're a physical space, we're a place to work. And like, mm -hmm. If you want to do that other work of, you know, changing policy, that's, that's not going to happen here. That's going to require a little bit more. Yeah. A hundred percent. But then it's also a little bit like, well, but some of that could happen here, right? Like when you have these people in this space, like maybe we can start yeah. to have some of these conversations. So yeah, there really is this tension where, I, I mean, I wrote this book, part of me still wishes like I could transport myself back in time and be a part of the wing, you know? Yeah, there, there is. I also had that, uh, episode in my life, Laura, where Emma brought me to the wing and I Ooh. went home and was like, 
Greg, I'm joining the wing. It's going to be worth it. You'll see, I'll get so much more work done. Like I'll feel better. I'll be in a wonderful space and community. And that, that lasted for like two days. And I was like, I can't join the wing. Like, that's not part of my budget. Like, what am I talking about? But like, it's yeah. so seductive to believe that you could belong to a, this beautiful place full of impressive people. And I feel like your book really gets at this, that like the wing at, and more importantly, nevertheless, they're trying to sort of embody a, a, an ideal of acceptance. And like, everyone deserves that. Every woman deserves acceptance. Um, that is what social justice is built on. It's not exclusivity. It's everyone gets the same. Everyone gets this, their needs met equally. Um, but what we really want in our communities is to be special, to have mm -hmm. other people kept out of the, there's no community um, in the way that humans build community without some people not being in it. And that is fundamentally like inextricable from the appeal of the social club, um, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so how do you find community without um, betraying the ideal of like, everyone deserves, everyone is equal, everyone is accepted. And it's, it's very difficult for the women of nevertheless to kind of resolve that. Um, and do you feel like you were still like, you're, you're still struggling with resolving that as you wrote it? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's really nice to be able to have a sort of common enemy might be the wrong term, but you know, <laughs> to be able to be like, well, the men can't come. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of the women in the club in the book will, will say the right things about like, oh, you know, we have to remember these other women too. We have mm -hmm. to support them, the ones who are not as fortunate as mm -hmm. us, but like, it takes hard work for them to actually reach out and include those other people. And also then it would make going to the club not feel quite as exciting and fun right mm. <laughs> like having something be secret or exclusive makes it automatically just so much more important than it actually is or makes it feel so much more important than it actually is I think yeah. I think so many of us don't don't want to admit the appeal of that because it feels kind of gross to be like I like being special I like being included in a thing that not everyone is um, and so if you can dress that up in like a mission, then you don't have to feel bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like there's this incredible like balancing act that these companies basically are trying to do, which is like marketing both acceptance and exclusivity and trying to capitalize on both of those desires, because what we all want is to be accepted and for other people not to be. Yeah. Um, and so if you can sell both sides of that, like that's very effective. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I remember in college, there were like Claire, you, you and I went to college together and there were these yes. sort of exclusive like eating clubs that were sort of half sorority fraternities and half like dining halls. And when I got to college, I was like, I would never join something like that where the purpose <laughs> is to make people feel bad and keep other people out and then you know within a month or two of being there I was like well maybe I would join one of the ones where you have to sign in and like everybody has a fair shot of yeah, first of come first in. serve yeah mm -hmm. and then by the time it came or like <laughs> when the time rolled around to actually 
apply for these things. I was like, no, I'm going to apply for one of the more exclusive ones where I have to do all sorts of things like special tests to prove my worth <laughs> um, because I think I can actually get it. Yeah, no, I did. I had the exact same journey. And I think that I, that's one reason that these clubs and like, I think fraternities and sororities can be similar. They weren't a huge thing at, at, our, at our school, but like they serve this purpose of, um, it funnels people into a certain social dynamic. Like you can go onto campus and be like, I'm not going to participate in the Greek scene, but it's very hard to remove yourself from an opportunity for acceptance when it presents itself. Yeah. And I was like, not, I didn't have that many friends. My first, Laura was one of the, my few friends (laughs) when I was a freshman (laughs) in in college. Uh, I was really consumed with like this relationship that I was in and I was not good at making friends. And when it was time to like apply for these clubs, I was like, well, this is kind of my chance to be chosen. Like I missed it freshman year. I didn't make those friendships. I didn't get a group. And if I just stay in the dining hall system, or if I join a sign in club and first come first serve, I'm not going to be granted that sense of being chosen and elected Mm. into a group. And I need that community. And like, it's not a good system. Like, people were rejected from these clubs and it really sucked. They were divided from their friends um, by that. Like that, that harm was like inherent to my sense of satisfaction (laughs) at getting in, which is like, yeah. 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 And like, I think maybe that experience like informed the way you write about this in the book. Cause I think it's really astute. (laughs) Yeah. And then I agree. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, like, I think that's where the compassion comes in. Like you don't castigate, um, you, you do a really good job of, you know, interrogating that impulse, but not demonizing it, not making it seem like it's this thing that the, the bad people have. Yeah. Like you do a really great job of universalizing that experience. And then picking it apart, but doing it from, um, a really, really compassionate place that I think makes it like really, um, a fantastic experience to read. Thank you. Yeah. I ultimately, I mean, I always really love my characters, even when they do kind of ridiculous. things. <laughs> um, and so I always do want them to ultimately succeed and try to be better. So I think I really was coming at the writing of it from that place of like, okay, they might fail. They might do some bad things but like is there hope for redemption for us all like can we (laughs) can we possibly find a way to both belong and not keep people out unnecessarily Mm -hmm. yeah and I think we're still all looking for that I mean I think we see this in like the politics of the left even where a lot of the ideals are about acceptance and everyone belongs but you find other ways of dividing, of being like, I'm one of the cool ones who was a socialist first, or like, yeah, I, <laughs> I belong to this like ideological sub community um, that's more <laughs> legitimate, or or that one, and like that is a c- constant challenge in politics as well as in our social lives, um, and like honestly, like every way that we structure our relationships is like this. That's what monogamy is, you know. Like we we all want to be picked and. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. It's so hard. This like brings us, I think, to something else I want to touch on that's a little bit outside of (laughs) the 
the pages of your book, which is Rachel Hollis. I've been dying to talk about this. Yes. We like, I just kept thinking about her whenever I would reach one of these stretches in your book. That's kind of unpicking the question of like the being elite and chosen versus, you know, being in community with all women, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, for those who don't know, Rachel Hollis is like this woman who founded a self-help empire about around being sort of a relatable struggling mom. Um, and she wrote a book called girl, wash your face that just had like snappy, like pep talk kind of advice in it. And then, you know, it's all started to fall apart. She and her husband, um, got a divorce, um, after like really selling themselves as like the perfect couple for a long time. And then this spring, she posted a video where she called her house cleaner, the woman who cleans her toilets and, was like, I don't want to be relatable. I work really hard to not be relatable. Most people can't do what I do. Um, I want to be exceptional, like all of my heroes, such as Harriet Tubman. <laughs> yeah. And like, <laughs> obviously this just like crystallizes a lot of what we've been talking about. Like, I don't know. Do you think Rachel Hollis would be like a member of Nevertheless? Like, or do you see differences in the way that she manifest this energy I think she might be a member of nevertheless (laughs) but then I also think maybe they would ultimately kick her out at a certain point I don't know like would they kick her out this week now that this New York Times article has sort of come out it feels like she's been a little stained you know she's maybe been too obvious saying some of the things that maybe some of these other women feel and think inside, but would like never say out loud, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to be relatable, but we don't say that. Don't admit, don't say it out loud. That is gauche. Okay. (laughs) I'm exceptional and I'm just like everyone else. That's yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) It does make you wonder like, was this always her game plan or did the power and like the attention that she was getting change her. That's something that I'm mm. so interested in. With I think people. that was yeah. my read of it a little bit. Like I'm sure some of those, again, like some of those instincts are probably like built into all of us, but I do think that, you know, in our culture, there's such a tendency of like finding individual women to like build up at a very, very quick rate and like anoint them and say like, this woman is every woman and she is fantastic. And like, you're almost building, we're building these, these female public figures up in a way that when they fuck up inevitably, there's like a delight in then seeing Mm -hmm. them fall and tearing them down. And it's like, well, did we really need to do the outsize building up or the outsize tearing down? Like maybe we could just acknowledge people's humanity a little bit more, but, um, that's less fun and makes less money, frankly. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I think she's a really, I think she is a really interesting example because she gets at that tension, like in her image so clearly because the thing that she was selling was her relatability. Like she's like, I'm just like you. I just, can put into words the thing that you need to do to take control of your life. And it's so simple. And I like, I get it. I get it because I've been you. I am you. I'm just like a little more enlightened. 
And then all of a sudden she was like, surprise, I've never been you at all. I don't want to be like, you. I am not relatable. Like I am relatable. just like Harriet Tubman. I'm not relatable. Know? I'm Harriet Tubman. That's oh my God. I but I totally admit that I felt like a schadenfreude, like seeing her just kind of fall. So I was like, well, I never liked her books anyway. Yeah. It is hard though, when it's somebody who you really like do love or care about, you know, I I think about like female politicians maybe, or just people who Mm. you really hold up as like groundbreaking heroes who maybe do a little bit more than the like girl wash your face. (laughs) Um, We invest those people with so much too. And are like, you are perfect. (laughs) You broke these barriers. You are incapable of having made a mistake. And then when it comes out that they have made mistakes, it hurts. (laughs) Right. And I think that that speaks to the fact that that there still are not that many women who reach these kind of levels. And so there is this like outsized investment and almost this like staking of a movement onto individuals. And that can be really, really, really dicey. Um, Yeah. This is sort of a little bit off topic, but I think that that that's tangentially related. (laughs) I mean, I think it, it does like Laura, you said you're really interested in this and it is very clear. I think in the book, like the seduction of power and the way that, that starting on the outside or at the bottom of the pyramid and then progressing to a place toward the top, um, is intoxicating. And uh, how do you, is there a way that you can approach that with responsibility? Um, or is power just too powerful, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Um, and what does it mean that we often like look at women as being too pure to be corrupted by power? Um, that like there are, if a woman is deserving of power, she should just have it because she's not going to abuse it. She's a woman. She doesn't abuse things. She nurtures them. And I see so much of that in your book and especially, um, maybe most obviously in the character of Nicole Wu Martin, who is mostly off the page, but she is, um, the woman who is present. She's present. (laughs) She's the first female mayor of New York City and someone that it was hoped would be the first female president. And then things go somewhat wrong for her. Yeah, exactly. And that was what I was dealing with. Like Jillian, the protagonist has invested so much in Nicole. Um, Like she really just believes that she is this sort of better human (laughs) Mm -hmm. who almost single-handedly can like change the world and make things better women but you know Nicole is somebody who kind of came into power out of nowhere and um it's it's hard for her and so she ends up making some mistakes <laughs> and then <laughs> which we the, won't spoil which we yeah. won't spoil we won't spoil but yeah then is the backlash more intense because she's a woman I don't know it's, it's hard to tell <laughs> I think yeah. that actually kind of goes into another thing I wanted to talk about which was um, which is the the kind of implosion of the girl boss trope. And there was this okay. sort of this cohort of women, um, girl bosses that were kind of the heads of companies that kind of rose up around the same time. And then over the last, I think like two years, there has been these like really big implosions, just all, you know, the wing away, um, outdoor voices, all of Thanks. these like big, 
things, all of these mm-hmm, big, which we weren't all discussing before we weren't yes. discussing things before, <laughs> um, these big buzzy brands that like in, in a lot of instances, um, you know, offer products that people probably genuinely enjoy, you know, from the wing to period underwear. Um, and yet then, you know, we kind of build up the, these, um, individual women became the faces of these brands. And then mm-hmm. when it was revealed that they were imperfect and at times abusive leaders, um, kind of the whole thing came, came tumbling down. And, um, that led to kind of a, yeah, a series of complicated conversations about whether male figures in the same position were, were held to the same standards where, whether there was like an outsized delight in seeing these women fall, but also like a genuine hurt on the part of a lot of other women who had maybe given their money or their like endorsement of these, these brands or like participated in them and feeling that then that thing that they had attached themselves to was in some way sullied. How did that kind of inform, um, your, your writing? I thought about that a lot. I mean, yeah, these women come to power with these (laughs) brands by basically making this promise to everybody of like, we are doing things differently and we are trailblazers in addition to offering you an incredible product. Right. Um, so yeah, they are selling themselves or like their image and what they can do for the world, Mm -hmm. um, as much as the product too. So it does make sense, I guess, then that we get mad when we find out that they're they're bad. Um, Or I shouldn't say they're bad, but they've made mistakes or in some cases were abusive to their staff. Um, And yeah, you know, I think with the whole girl boss narrative, there's this sense of, of women maybe getting to these positions and then starting to think like, wow, I'm really hot shit. Can I curse on here? Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) Great. Being like, wow, I'm really hot shit. Like I did this all and I'm a woman and I like broke these barriers. So therefore I don't need to treat the people around me with respect or like maybe it was hard for me. So I'm going to make it hard for everybody else too. And it sucks when we find out about that. So yeah, I understand where the hurt comes from, but then yeah, I am also like, so I'm sure men fail all the time with like the brands and the companies that they run. And yet I don't really know their names or their stories in the same way that I know about like thinks or the wing. Um, and is it just because they never had this image of like, look at how I'm breaking the boundaries? Um, or is there a lot of sexism baked into that too? And like men are allowed to fail because there are so many more of them who are getting the chance to try. Um, right. And yeah. I think it's probably like that thorny mix of both, which is what makes talking about it, you know, I think really, really challenging. Yeah. And also just the question of like, can it be ethical to have that much power and yeah. money? And mm-hmm. th- there were, I think, elements of the girl boss explosion, which were, um, sort of inherently pro-capitalist, which is like being a CEO is good. And so it's good that women are being CEOs, but there's also a degree of like, well, now you can finally feel good about CEOs because <laughs> yeah. these women are doing it right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I feel like yeah. we're both part of it. And I think that those are both wrong. Like it's not 
that capitalism is bad unless a woman is in charge and making all the money and calling all the shots. And it's also not that capitalism is good. So we need more of it. It's just like inherently you give anyone that power and that like accumulation of wealth and like bad things are going to happen. And then we can point fingers at the women and we probably should if they did bad stuff. But like the, the problem is not that we let Sophia Amoruso like, sell a book called girl boss about her clothing company it's the whole system right and it's bp and it's fucking google it's all these things right like it, and but and also i think it's it's like a much sexier conversation to talk about like the individual slack messages that you know the away ceo sent than it is to talk about like what harm is venture capital being infused into these startups? Like what harm does that cause on like a larger scale? Like how much power are we giving these, you know, silent investors who tend to be like, not these women that are then the faces of, of these companies. Um, and that's a more complicated conversation. And yeah, it requires us to perhaps indict capitalism as yeah. a whole. Yeah. <laughs> I, sorry, capitalism. <laughs> Sorry, okay. capitalism. We're doing I'm totally it. sorry. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but yeah, it does feel like the easier conversation that then some people fall into is like, well, maybe we shouldn't give the ladies so much power then because they certainly <laughs> can't handle it. They're not ready. <laughs> right. As opposed to like, maybe the whole system needs to be torn down. And right. like, why does anyone have this much access and control this much labor? And like, why aren't there laws to... Uh, properly protect workers from leaders who might get abusive. Like, let's talk about that. That was one of the weird things about the wings inherent sort of structure to me is like, I would see members sometimes tweet like, Oh, the wing is so wonderful as a woman, you know, I had a bad day and I got caught in a rainstorm and I rushed in and within moments I had a complimentary cocktail in my hand and someone was brushing perfume into my hair and I just (laughs) felt, and I was like, well, someone was doing the care work, you know, it was women saying like, finally, I am being cared for in a way that I'm accustomed to being expected to care for others. But like someone is still doing that care work. So it's really just like, and it was most of the time, other women, other women, other non-cisgender people. Yeah. Um, And mm -hmm. so there was just like a a way in which we were casting, like just the same fucking thing as always, which is like women, mostly women of color doing care work for wealthy white people as this revolutionary thing. Um, and it always just comes back to like, how are your employees being treated? Are they, are they expected to like drop everything and go brush perfume into someone's <sighs> hair at the minute that she stumbles into your I want to be very and- clear. That is never a thing that happens. This was inspired by a real tweet that I remember, but I don't remember exactly what happened. It wasn't that no one had perfume brush into their hair, but it was a, a similar a care, sentiment. Care work. Care, yes. care, yeah. Great care was given to them. Right. Prioritizing the comfort of women who had means to belong to such a club. Um, and obviously race plays, you know, into that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it just gets really complicated. And also like, to me, it's like such a lesson, like maybe depending on some inherent altruism in women because of these like ideas that are fucked up in the first place that we have about women as an entire gender who make up, you know, 
half the fucking population. <laughs> like maybe depending on that altruism isn't the way to go. Again, maybe you need to like protect workers and maybe no matter what, who your boss is, you need to be guaranteed a living wage and guaranteed certain protections and always have, um, you know, a clear way to report grievances and have those grievances addressed in a way that is fair. And like, that is the the ultimate problem here, right? That's not going to be solved by any specific kind of person, you know, operating within that position of power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I realized suddenly that we have like really gone off into this discussion <laughs> land and I want to like, off the rail. Yeah, I want to get, get get bring it back a little bit. We're going to continue having a fun free flowing conversation, but yeah. I want to bring it back a little bit to another uh, element of the book that I loved and wanted to talk about, um, which is the way that Jillian as the, as the protagonist kind of so sorry my... <laughs> oh sorry we're having a very active interruption oh taping. sorry everyone sorry my boyfriend keeps sorry. trying to call and then I tried to hang up on him and then <laughs> I accidentally set off the SOS alarm so guys, oh this, look this is just what happens when you know <laughs> you are just like recording on the fly um oh. Laura I'm so sorry no uh, oh please it's <laughs> fine <laughs> um, the cicadas are like about to descend on bc so anything i record probably in the next few weeks the whole time they'll just be like oh my god buzzing laura <laughs> are you having tongue. such a flashback to high school do you remember the last time this happened i weirdly don't remember don't? it all that much i don't know there, there just dead cicadas like everywhere yeah that's true like what so claire i don't know if you know these ones come like every, every 17, 17 years, years in the area and they're so loud and they die all over the place and you just like crunch them as you're walking down the street yeah oh to the be clear laura and i Indiana, both both grew I don't up think... in uh in in the suburbs of dc so yeah i remember yeah. And, and we met each other one time at a wedding when we were like 10 years old yeah <laughs> Oh my God. Well, you that's guys. how we're related. Yeah. By our cousins. Because, yeah. yeah, my the second cousins. My aunt married my, my uncle, dad's who's cousin. your, yeah, who's your yeah. first cousin once removed. Yeah. So that's how we it's are incredible. cousins by marriage. Yeah. It's a small world, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so, so, wow, we, we were just like, we got to get off the tangents. Yeah, now. guys, and I'm I really, really apologize. But Probably yeah, so Claire, take us back. Let's talk about, you know, another theme of the book. <laughs> yes. Are we going to get into the Jillian. witchcraft now? Uh, no, um, not yet. So one thing that I really loved about the book was the way that Jillian relates to other women. And it's very... Uh, complicated you know it's a book about female acceptance and community and Jillian is someone who feels sort of outside of that um and there's a scene where she first manages to get inside nevertheless on a trial basis and she looks around and sees all these successful stylish women and she thinks like this particular kind of paradise, sorry, particular kind of paradise brought its own set of complications. I throbbed with adrenaline, wanting in spite of myself to impress and ingratiate even more than I might have if men were around. Mm. Um, and this rang so true to me. Um, and it's something that really fascinates me, like the idea that an all-female space 
is seen as safe for women, but it also completely overlooks the ways in which women are vulnerable to each other in ways that they may not even be to men. And is this something that, that you ever find yourself feeling in all women's spaces? Where did this like come (laughs) from for you? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I'm with men in some ways, I, I judge myself on like how attractive I am to them physically, perhaps. (laughs) I mean, I try not to judge myself in any of those ways, (laughs) but it comes up sometimes. Whereas um, with women, if I'm not worrying about that as much, um, it's so much more like, oh, but then what about my personality? (laughs) (laughs) It could be so much more devastated if they didn't like me in that way. You know, if I wasn't warm or interesting or full or smart enough for them. Yeah. It's like, there's no defense in a way of being like, no one's paying attention to my personality. Mm -hmm. I'm not being overlooked for my personality. It's like, oh no, I'm actually being scrutinized on it. And maybe it's not very good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My deepest fear always. (laughs) I remember like writing in my high school journals, like, I think I might just be boring and have a terrible personality. (laughs) And that's why I do musical theater. (laughs) that I can say, say the lines and sing the songs that somebody else has written. Wow. I also did musical theater and now I'm rethinking my entire childhood. (laughs) Yeah. I think we all probably kept like the same journal in high school. Just throwing that out there. Probably. Um, Although I did not do musical theater. I could not sing well enough, but yeah, there is this regular theater, right? Yeah. Regular theater. Um, normal theater no um there there's like uh, this gives the book I think like an element that at times is almost kind of like sapphic in a way um mm-hmm. there is you know there are multiple male love interests for Jillian her editor Miles um and Raph um who she enters into a sort of complicated fake boyfriend situation which is one of my favorite tropes so thank you for that me too um, <laughs> what am I too? yeah but her relationships with the women actually feel even more charged to me there is this like mutual seduction happening um she has these friendships with Margot and Caroline who are the founders of powerful sort of celebrity women who founded nevertheless and a couple of the other women in the club. And they, they are just charged with this like need for a mutual intimacy and this like fear of not having it. Um, And how I'm just so impressed with how you captured that. Thank you. Yeah. I think there is this sense when you meet certain women of like, I don't know if I want to spend all my time with you be best friends with you, be you, or if I'm in love with you. (laughs) Yeah, there is. It's it's like, it's a really intense kind of draw to be accepted, especially when I think um, that is mixed with like a little bit of jealousy and it gets very, very complicated. And yeah, I think you did capture that so well. Um, And also the excitement of like a new intimacy with a woman that you really admire, which I think is illustrated super well with the Margot relationship, um, especially because there is like that hint of distrust as well. That's kind of fundamental to it. Like Jillian is infiltrating. She's not being totally honest with them and they don't totally trust her. And yet she's like feeling this surge of acceptance and this surge of, you know, 
confiding in this woman and this woman's confiding in her. And that is like, so, so electric. Yeah. And I think, you know, I wanted Jillian to be really starved for relationships with other women at this point in her life. And, you know, her mother has recently died um, and she was the, the woman that she was the closest to, but then also her female friends from growing up or from college uh, had gotten married and started having babies. And Jillian was just not in that place in her life at all. And I think that is something that can happen sometimes where like all of a sudden you're on a totally different timeline from your friends. And there are just like large swaths of your life that suddenly start to feel inaccessible to that person or, you know, vice versa. And so I, I wanted Jillian to come in in this moment in her life where she was like, women that I can talk to. <laughs> oh my God. I told myself I didn't even care about that. And I wasn't really missing it, but I am. And there is sort of a, a magic in that, which I think, you know, you capture almost explicitly because there is this element of witchcraft in the book, which I think we really wanted to talk about, like is nevertheless a coven. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that came a little bit from the wing because um, I don't know if you all remember, like part of their marketing material was like, come join the coven. <laughs> um, right. Oh yeah. So- there, there was merch being sold with, uh, with the term coven on it for sure. Yeah, me <laughs> and my witches. Um, <laughs> and I, they're obviously this, this fat or not, I don't know if it's a fad, but the sense of like, Ooh, it's so fun to call myself a witch or like live life with witch energy. Um, (laughs) right. Because it's a a thing that makes you feel like you have some control, um, or that like makes you feel like you can kind of scare men. Right. Um, and so I wanted the women in the club to, to be into that and Jillian to perhaps be rolling her eyes at it a little bit, but then seeing how it unfolded. Yeah, there's something about the, the, like, it feels wrong to call it a fad because obviously different forms of witchcraft um, have been around for like millennia Yeah, and um, they're very deeply rooted in different cultures. Um, But there is this kind of explosion of like, you go to Urban Outfitters and you can buy a sage bundle for like 20 Mm -hmm. bucks or you can buy a book that's yeah like some They're sort of like badass in, in feminist spin on witchcraft year. crystals everywhere. <laughs> everywhere and it does feel very closely tied to like this girl boss trend in some way although you make the link very more explicit um i mean why did that feel like so closely linked to you i don't know does that make I, sense yeah no i think they're both about power, right? Like Mm. girl boss power and witch power, right? I was really (laughs) interested in exploring um, the ways in which women relate to power historically Mm. and currently. Uh, And so, you know, for so long, sort of the, the most powerful thing a woman could be in many ways was a witch, right? And at times that was wonderful. At times that was used to take women down, um, because they scared you. And, you know, now it, it feels like we have spent all this time being like, no, actually the way to get power is to be a girl boss and to do all the things that men do, but as a woman, um, and 
that's how we're going to like reach equality. And it's clearly not working <laughs> as we've just talked about with the girl boss implosion. And as the pandemic has really laid bare, that like there is so far to go. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when, when you realize that one thing you're trying isn't working, do you kind of go back to this other thing? Um, yeah. But then do you try to hold it up in a, a way that's too similar to the girl boss thing? Like you were saying, Claire, how they feel so similar. Yeah, no, I think that they're both just things that, yeah, that the market has like latched onto to sell women ways to like have power. I think that's yeah. really true that like they, they're both ways that you can be like buy this book or this crystal or the self-help seminar, and you're not going to feel like a victim of your life anymore. Yeah. But it also feels like there's sort of a trendy way to be witchy right now. And then there's like a messier, weirder way to be witchy, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is like the way that people have been for a long time. And it's like the purer, more pure way of doing it, right? Of like really being into Wicca or, you know, all of these wonderful things. Um, it feels like that's not quite as trendy to go as deep into it as like buying a sage bundle or a, a crystal. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. No, certainly like, not. Yeah. The, the other, the, the like more authentic maybe though authentic is a loaded term authentic mm -hmm. uh, engagement in in witchcraft is is different from buying a sage bundle at urban outfitters yeah um but one of them is just so much easier to so much do. Easier. and yes. cuter you know and it's cuter. so cute and <laughs> and I also think there is something like seductive about um as, as a woman it, there's like, it's like a nice distraction almost like, <laughs> yeah. like, okay, maybe I'm never actually going to be able to get real tangible power or like be able to protect myself in lots of situations. But like, Hey, I can just like put a couple crystals in the corners of my house and like hope for the placebo effect and like yeah. feel good about it. And, and it looks you know, good in your house. It looks so good. And no I downside. love the smell of sage and like, there you go. Um, yeah. 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 There's <laughs> a scene where Margot gives Jillian a tarot reading when she's sort of on trial to see if she'll get into nevertheless as a member. Um, and in between the first time that I read this book and the second time that I read it, I had my own first tarot reading. Mm, and, Priscilla. Yeah, with our friend who was <laughs> wonderful. And um, so th the second time I read it, I think I noticed more the, the real thing that's happening in this reading, which is that it's like about friendship, that like you're sitting down with, with another woman usually who is like paying really close attention to you and your, what's going on in your life and what you're feeling and what you maybe haven't even noticed about yourself. And she's working through that with you and helping you bring that to light. And, um, and that's something that this thread of like the witchcraft question, um, I think really captures in this book. Yeah, building that intimacy with another person and something that like allows you to discover things about yourself that you might just like not want to look at or not have had a chance to look at. That's so much what I feel like those things do for me, at least. Yeah, when I've gotten my tarot read by friends, it's very much that. I still remember like at my friend's bachelorette party, we read each other's tarot and it was before 
I was trying to sell Happy New Note that like that was coming. My my previous book, it was coming. Um, we were about to send it out, and she pulled some card that was about how like I was gonna have a really good fall and like creative things were going to come to me. <laughs> and in that moment, we were both like happy and you know it is going to sell to a publisher, <laughs> you uh, know? And it did, so. And it did. Right, hey. but it's not like the cards made that happen, but it was just, it, it, I, for whatever reason, like really remember this moment of well, there's beautiful intimacy um, with my friend. Yeah, yeah. The, there's the intimacy and also just like something very powerful about, about seeing something that you believe or want to believe about yourself kind of reflected back at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is- and, and that can be useful in, in its own way. Yeah. yeah. Gives you the, the like kick in the pants you need to exactly. go after the thing more. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you, you know, it's like maybe it's a uh, supernatural power or it's my friend who believes in me. And that's both sound that nice. Really, <laughs> yeah. really nourishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we touched on this before, Laura, but I wanted to come back to it because I think it's so important in the book, um, is the question of motherhood. Um, we're taping this right before Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. The book is coming out just a few days after. And it's a day that has been complicated for both of us through our whole friendship. Both of our moms passed away when we were young. Um, Jillian, as well, has recently gone through the death of her mother. As you mentioned, she's grieving throughout the book. Uh, what was it like for you to put an experience that was so personal to you in a way on the page? Yeah. So when I first started developing Jillian as a character, this was not an aspect of her character, maybe for the first you know few weeks that I was working on the book. And I was having trouble really logging into her and trying to figure out like why she was in such a dark place at the beginning. And then I was like, you know what? I think she's going through this grieving process and she's just lost this incredibly important person to her. And then immediately that was like the emotional hook that I needed to get really invested in her and really care about her. So in some ways I feel a little bit like a sociopath, just like, (laughs) you know. You include that in the book though, because there are points when Jillian's relationship with her late mother becomes a way for her to bond with women that she meets in the process of reporting the story. And she's like, what's wrong with me that I'm like using my mom, that I'm using my, like her death for like my advancement. Like how, how can I be doing this? And yet, you know, you have to. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you've been dealt that shitty hands of hand of cards, maybe you've got to play them sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like you don't have the mom. All you have is the dead mom card. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it really is like an incredibly fast way to bond with somebody, I think, as you know, Claire, you and I, I think found in the beginning of college (laughs) when we had each other. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's yeah. not something that when you're in college, many people around you probably have been through. Um, and even like in the late 20s, which is around Jillian's age, like it's 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 still not the most common experience that your peers have had. And um, so that that gives you uh, an immediate bond. Um, and the like the importance of motherhood like also extends to her relationships with her old friends who we never see. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it made me think of your last book, uh, Happy and You Know It, which for those who haven't read, it's also, it's very, it's a delight. It's very uh, funny and and dark. Um, And it's about also a sort of down and out lonely woman in her 20s who gets drawn into a clique of wealthy women. I know. Um, (laughs) It's funny because when I describe the books that way, I'm like, wow, I wrote the same exact book. But then when you actually read the book they're so they're very different yeah let's be very clear (laughs) very different different. vibes but certainly like different ways into that kind of dynamic yeah Yeah, but like so in happy and you know it the click is of moms it's a mom group that she that she works for she's like a musician for their music group every week and that's how she gets drawn into the group and then of course Jillian um has a group of friends who are moms and so she never sees them (laughs) um And so like, there is like in both of your books, this like tension between women at the sort of age that we all are like late twenties, early thirties, women with and without kids who are at this like formative point in their adulthood. Um, Why do you think that you keep coming back to this? Like that, like what feels so like generative for you about that juxtaposition? That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, I think it's obviously in part that like motherhood has loomed large and thinking about motherhood has loomed large in my life ever since losing my own. Um, I think with happy and you know it, that came from me actually working as a musician for these mom groups and looking at them and being like, wow, will I ever have a life like that? Do I want a life like that? Um, you know, how will I be as a mother if that happens for me? And particularly at that point in my life, I wasn't sure if my, you know, path would include trying to have that. Um, yeah. So I was really fascinated by like the choices that you can make in a life and how they might send you down different paths and how obviously fatherhood changes you too, but like motherhood just is such a way that we all use to like define people mm-hmm. to define women. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I think that's, that's a large part of it for me. Um, but you know, also like, it is really fascinating to be in this place in my life where I would say probably about half of my very good friends at this point are mothers and the other half aren't. And like, I found out, um, the other day that like a, in my friend group from college, there are a five of us and half our moms and half aren't well they're five people <laughs> three we <laughs> are two aren't <laughs> um and I realized that like the moms had started their own text chain you know we have like a group text but the moms had started their own as well because I think in part they didn't want to bother us with certain like th- things about their kids and they you know one was a newer mom and wanted to ask for advice and all of that and I was sort of like okay that makes sense but also I was so sad about it a little bit like I'm left out now yeah well and like it it makes sense to me like it makes sense to me but also that's one of the reasons that I think that we expect moms to go off and like do their own thing and I think it's one of the reasons that when you enter motherhood you have no idea what's going on because no one wants to tell you until Mm -hmm. you're a mom and my first months of being a mom were incredibly hard in ways that like no one had mentioned to me. And I was like, what if I had been on these group chats and then I would know, but I have a group chat like with a couple of friends now. And, and one of them recently had 
a baby and the other one doesn't. And we just include all our baby stuff in there. And I'm like, if she doesn't want to read it, she doesn't have to, (laughs) but like, you know, let's, let's keep it all. Let's keep it all in the family, in my opinion, but it's tough because when, yeah, there is an expectation that mom stuff is just, it's secret and private like witchcraft, you know? Yeah. And also it can be, it it can be quite overwhelming. And I think like Mm -hmm. as someone who doesn't have kids, there also can be like a feeling of, well, now all of these big conversations are happening and they are the most important thing and I can't contribute to them. And that is Mm -hmm. like an odd dynamic to have reintroduced, um, into friendships that you've made, especially as an adult. Like, I Mm -hmm. think that that's a, a feeling that I was familiar with. Like when you're, you know, having your sexual awakening and you're like, fucking doorbell is ringing. I'm sorry. Um, I'm in hell. Um, but it's a feeling that's familiar when, you know, you're like someone, you're the last one that didn't give a hand job or something. You know what I mean? You're the last one who didn't get your vaccine. (laughs) Yeah. You're the last one that didn't get your vaccine, but like everyone is talking about something an experience that they have had and you haven't had it. And so you can't contribute to it. And I think that that is, um, sort of something that also tends to happen with motherhood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Emma's going to go answer her doorbell. So we're going to talk. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely true. It's like, you don't want to keep people out of the the knowledge, but also it's like, it doesn't feel relevant yet. Um, and so it's almost impossible to navigate that divide without just a major change in your friendship or in Jillian's case, um, finding a new group of women who are available for the kind of intense, like all consuming friendship that she needs to navigate her mother's death. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I just, it's just such a rich book with the way all the relationships are, are handled. And I'm excited for, for people to read it. Thank um, you. Me too. Excited and a little, little scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not scared. I'm feeling very confident. Um, Emma, is there anything else that you wanted to ask before we start wrapping up? No, I think that we really got into yeah. it and got into many things uh, that are tangentially related. <laughs> but I did want to call out the fact that this book is being developed for TV. Yeah. <laughs> it's so freaking cool. Oh, you're just like turning so into wild. a girl boss right before our very eyes. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Just watch kidding. out. I'm going to start being <laughs> horrible to everybody who's not as important as me. <laughs> I would actually find that to be really hilarious to watch because Laura is one of just the nicest people. Yeah. I've ever really met in playing, playing against type. Um, yeah. and in a way that would be funny, but do you want to talk to us a little bit about that process and, you know, what's going on with, with the book. Yeah. Uh, so deadline just announced a few days ago, um, that Paramount TV studios and Samantha B and her production company have teamed up to develop this book. And the really exciting thing beyond that, which is incredibly exciting, is that I get to adapt the script and be an executive producer on the project. Ooh. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so girl kind boss of, shit. 
Yeah. It was a little bit of that thing where I was like, should I ask for what I want? Even if I'm worried that people are going to say no. Yeah. I'm going to ask for what I want. Which is a big part of the book. So (laughs) you got to put it in action. Yeah. Um, So, you know, my, my books to TV agent sent out the manuscript to a bunch of people in like end of January, early February, and then was having lots of really cool creative conversations with different places and looking for the right fit. And ultimately this was the one. And so now I think we're looking for uh, somebody to be the showrunner. We're like starting that process. Um, and they're going to supervise me as I adapt the script. And, <laughs> you know, I, I have some experience, but have never like worked in a TV writer's room myself. Um, and then, you know, we still have to try to sell it to a network. So it's certainly not a done deal, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a really it's big so deal. Exciting. It's a really exciting step. Um, and I know that I desperately want to see a TV show of this book because it is (laughs) so rich and so much fun. It is really fun. Like I just think about what the pilot would be and I'm like, oh yeah, it'll be really fun to see this thing on screen and that thing and that thing and that thing. (laughs) Do you have any like dream pie in the sky casting? Like, is there anyone that you picture as, as Jillian or as Margo or as Raph? Yeah. So I think my Jillian, like top three, uh, would be, <laughs> I mean, obviously if another incredible actress came to me and was like, I want to be her. Yeah. Um, but like, I think Aubrey Plaza, Kristen mm-hmm. Milioti or Aquafina, like all have that balance. Of, yeah. Of like comedy, but groundedness and like in the farewell, Aquafina is so good there. Um, Aubrey Plaza's deadpan humor is so great for this. Kristen Milioti, I would watch her do anything. <laughs> it's yes. all in the eyes. All in the eyes. I yeah. love that list. It's like I would cast typically Aubrey Plaza and Kristen Milioti for very different things. But yeah. like now I just like see them in a different way because you said that. I love that. <laughs> That's a really good list. Yeah. They would all be now I want all of them her. to do it. Mm, maybe Just we should rotate the show them out times. like every yeah. episode there's every everyone is recast <laughs> yeah the bold new vision suggest that <laughs> I will oh man I'm so excited for that and I'm excited for next week for the release of a special place for women uh Laura this was so wonderful. I'm so glad we made this happen. Thank you so much for having me. Talking with you both is a dream. (laughs) We love this, you know, apologies for some of our technical difficulties, (laughs) but this is just the real and raw experience of living in a non-doorman New York city apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I hope that we will be able to do this again one day, maybe to talk about your fancy new TV show. Who knows? Uh, fingers crossed, <laughs> casting some spells. Um, and on that note, that's it for this episode of Rich Text. Thanks so much to our guest, Laura Hankin. And remember to order her book, A Special Place for Women. You can find us on Substack and at Claire and Emma Pod. Or on our individual Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Claire E. Fallon. And I'm at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back soon.